0: From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, On Health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health. From periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health, join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. Did you know that just five days of ibuprofen use has been associated with gastritis, a potentially dangerous inflammation in the lining of the stomach that's caused by this medication, that ibuprofen now has a warning for increasing the risk of heart attacks in adults who use it, and that Tylenol eats up glutathione, one of the body's main natural detoxification chemicals. Yet these are the medications we turn to over and over for our kids when they have a fever. Today, in Who's Afraid of Fever, I'm going to talk about fever, what it is, why we get them, are they dangerous, what are the risks and benefits of medications, and some gentle alternatives you might consider using if and when your little one has a fever. One recent afternoon, a lovely natural mama in my neighborhood wrote me a semi-frantic email. Her nine-month-old daughter was running a high fever, she said, of 1004 Since her daughter also had a cough, this mama was really worried about pneumonia. I've been giving her ibuprofen around the clock to try to bring the fever down, she added, and I'm really scared. A few emails and a phone conversation later, she felt reassured by me that this was a low temperature and that her daughter did not have symptoms of pneumonia, and the mama was more able to relax. I totally get it, though. When my own son, my oldest child, was around 18 months old, he's now almost 38 for the record, he had his first fever. I took him to the doctor because I didn't know what else to do. She told me it was a viral infection, and still she recommended that I give him an antibiotic. She also told me to rub him down with rubbing alcohol. I filled the prescription, but something inside me was saying, wait a minute, viral infections. I thought antibiotics were for bacterial infections. And when I opened that bottle of rubbing alcohol that I brought home with me and had my son in the bathtub where she said to put him in a tepid bath and rub him down with the alcohol, something just struck a nerve in me. And I didn't do it. I didn't do any of these things, including the antibiotic. Instead, I called her and told her that he was nursing, resting, and otherwise seemed himself. So could I just watch and wait? And she said, I could. And that's what I did. What's really interesting and slightly disturbing is that we now know that rubbing kids down with rubbing alcohol when they have a fever or at all is a major cause of nerve damage in kids. So it's not recommended medically anymore. It's gone the way of the dinosaur, as in, It's a completely extinct medical recommendation. We also now know that 70% of all antibiotics that are recommended to kids are completely unnecessary and inappropriately recommended and can cause long-term health problems in our kids, including when they become adults. And it's also a leading cause of the global antibiotic resistance crisis. So I'm really glad I trusted my intuition, but I was pretty scared. I think we've all been pretty well programmed to assume that we have to treat a fever and that fevers are kind of scary or maybe dangerous. So I set out to understand more about fever and get comfortable with it and know when medical care was needed and what I could do to make my children more comfortable when they did have a fever, which eventually was going to happen. That was 37 years ago. And in the interim years, I've now guided tens of thousands of families through fevers without unnecessary medical treatment. And now, as a Yale-trained MD who also happens to write the curriculum on integrative medicine for pediatric residencies around the country, I'm even more convinced of the need for us to avoid unnecessary medications and over-treatment of fever in our kids. Unfortunately, I've seen kids chronically over-medicated for fevers, encouraged by doctors and also moms who are scared, and I just really want us to feel empowered to know when to treat but also know when not to treat and what we can do instead. If you're a mama, which is probably why you're listening to this, or maybe you're a grandparent, you are inevitably going to have to deal with fever because pretty much every otherwise healthy kid is going to have one at some point. In fact, over 5 million parents take their kids to the emergency department every year for fever. 5 million parents! That's a lot of emergency department visits. And right now, this may be especially apropos because we're entering cold and flu season, but kids get fevers all year long. So I wanted to learn to feel more confident so that next time I knew what I could do to help my child. Again, that was a long time ago, and you may have a lot of questions for me like, well, should I ever do Tylenol? Should I go to the doctor's office? That's what we're going to talk about today. And you're going to know what to do if your little one does wake up in the middle of the night fretful and hot to the touch, and you check her temperature, and it's 102 degrees. She's had a cold for a few days, but maybe she hasn't had a fever until now. Maybe she's screaming from pain from an ear infection, and you're worried, and you don't know what to do. Should you give Tylenol? Should you call your doctor's office hoping to reach someone in the middle of the night? Should you go to the emergency department? Can you wait until morning? You've heard about using herbs for fever and thought it sounded good at the time, but now that your child has one, you're not so sure. Believe me, I've been there as a mama and also as a family doctor who practices pediatrics and has spent several years on night call doing triage, answering exactly those calls from worried moms and dads and also doing middle of the night emergency department and hospital admissions, of course, during the day too. So what should you do? If your child is under one month old and has a fever at all, or your child is under three months old and has a fever and nobody else in the family has a cold, call your doctor or go to the emergency room. If your child is listless, not responding to you normally, or seems very sick, call your doctor or go to the emergency room. If this is your child's first time having a fever, it can make you feel really anxious and it can also cloud your judgment if you're feeling anxious. Even if it's not your first time at the rodeo, our children being sick generally makes us feel vulnerable, anxious, and emotional. So first thing, try to take a few deep breaths. Literally, take a step back, take some breaths, and try to objectively notice how sick your child seems to be. Kids with fevers, especially if the fever is at the higher end, are normally going to be sleepy, cranky, irritable. They may sleep a lot with a high fever or even at the lower end of the range of fevers, they may sleep. They may be really fussy, really uncomfortable, and a breastfeeding baby may never want to get off your boob because they just want to nurse all day long. It's how they're staying hydrated and also comforted. And very commonly, kids, when coming down with something, the fever may be the first thing you notice. Or sometimes you'll notice your kid was acting kind of not him or herself for a day or two. Then the fever and maybe some cold symptoms come on. Sometimes the cold symptoms come on first. You notice a little runny nose, then their eyes look a little glazed or red or irritated, and then shazam, it all comes on at once. Sometimes your child may have a fever with no other symptoms, and that is a time when you do also want to bring your child to the doctor, because that can be some kind of a hidden infection, like a urinary tract infection. Fever is at the top of the list of three conditions that parents are most afraid of their kids getting. Cough and meningitis are the other two. We've all been pretty well programmed to assume that we have to treat fever. And even that fever is scary or dangerous. And what we're mostly afraid of is usually the complications, implications, or perceived consequences of a fever. Is it some really scary disease that's causing the fever? That's what most of us worry about. And even more so, most parents worry or wonder that fever can cause brain damage, coma, or death. And hey, that's pretty scary stuff to wonder about. Actually, some healthcare providers are also afraid of this even though the facts show that these are completely unrealistic fears in almost every case of fever in a child. Nonetheless, it can feel really darn scary when our kids are sick. We've been raised to think that fevers are dangerous, and this is reinforced by the fact that we're encouraged by our children's doctors to give medication to bring the fever down. But is this really necessary? And are fevers dangerous? First, let's talk about how to check a temperature. Now, most of us mamas are pretty cued into our children's fevers. We know when they feel hot. We put our hand on their forehead, or we go to kiss their cheek, or we're snuggling them, and they're like, wow, their skin feels really hot. And that's often when they're coming down with that fever before we actually start to see signs of that cold or other symptoms. And it's when they feel hot, or when they say, mommy, I don't feel well, or when they are having other symptoms, that's what usually leads us to check a temperature which I actually do recommend doing to confirm whether there is or isn't a fever, because then also if they do get full on sick, it'll help you decide what's the best next steps to take. And it'll give you a baseline to compare to so you can see if the temperature is going up or resolving. I recommend using digital electronic thermometers. And if you have any old-fashioned glass thermometers in your house, it's important to get rid of those in a safe way. They contain mercury, so we don't just throw them in their trash. They need to be disposed of as a toxic waste. But importantly, don't put those into your child's mouth or your child's butt to check a rectal temperature. Digital or electronic thermometers are found easily in stores. They're inexpensive and they can be used for rectal, armpit, and oral temperatures. Most of them give an accurate temperature in 10 seconds or less. And so that's what I recommend. A temperature is typically considered a fever of over 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. And most fevers in kids range in the 101 to 103.5 degrees Fahrenheit range. A high fever is typically considered over 103.5. However, readings are going to be higher or lower depending on whether you're taking that temperature under the armpit, on the forehead, rectally, or in the ear. And not all methods are appropriate at any age. Here's a helpful list of when doctors consider a child to have a fever. You do not have to memorize this or anything I'm saying in this podcast episode, I can relax while you listen and refer back to the information. Go ahead over to avivaram.com, natural fever treatments, or you can Google that and just go to my website and search for fever or who's afraid of fever. All those things will get you to the article, the blog that corresponds with this episode, which I try to do for you as often as possible so that you can relax, listen and learn, and then go back, bookmark, Save, reference, and share. So here's when we as physicians consider a child to have a fever. If it's rectal, forehead, or ear temperature, that's when it's 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. So 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 38 degrees Celsius or higher. If it's oral, so in the mouth, the temperature of 100 degrees or 37.8 degrees Celsius or higher. And under the armpit, the temperature is 99.0 or 37.2 degrees Celsius or higher. So what's the most accurate way? You've got all these options, right? Rectal, forehead, ear, oral, et cetera, et cetera. Which ones should you do? Rectal temperatures are the most accurate, but for children, those can feel really invasive And kids are really wickily. And it can be anxiety provoking to know how far to put the thermometer in. So a lot of parents feel really nervous about it. Forehead temperatures are the next best, most accurate from rectals. Forehead temperatures are the most convenient. And they're really close to rectal temperatures for accuracy. Oral and ear temperatures. So in the mouth and ear. Because oral, A-U-R-A-L, means in the ear. So it can be confusing. So oral in the mouth and in the ear are also accurate if done properly. And ear temperatures are generally easy to check, but some kids don't like stuff being put in their ears. Ear temperatures are also not accurate for babies under six months of age. Temperatures done in the armpit are the least accurate, but can be done at any age. You have to make sure that the thermometer is really well in there, really tucked in, and you have to hold your child's arm down close in so that it gets nice and snug and warm in there for the temperature to get picked up. Methods also differ by age. So under three months, an armpit temperature is actually the safest method, and a forehead temperature may now be accurate too. It used to be that they weren't considered accurate, but the newest data shows that in three months and under, they are accurate. If the armpit temperature is elevated, or if the forehead temperature is elevated, recheck it with a rectal thermometer, and if elevated immediately bring your baby to the doctor. Remember, babies under one month always need to go see the doctor if they have a fever. Babies aged three months to four years old. Rectal or forehead temperatures are accurate. An ear thermometer can be used after six months old. And an armpit temperature can be done if it's done correctly. For kids four years and older, it's safe to take the temperature by mouth. And then ear and forehead thermometers are also good. It's important to check in the same place each time during any illness. So if you're checking it by forehead, keep checking it by forehead. If you're checking it rectally, keep checking it rectally. Again, the only time to switch is in those young babies. If the armpit or forehead is elevated, then you want to confirm with a rectal. There are things that can also affect your temperature readings accuracy. So it's going to be higher if your baby or child has been swaddled, bundled, or in a warm bath. So I recommend unbundling or unswaddling baby for 15 minutes. Keep baby warm and comfortable, but not all bundled up. And don't give your child a warm bath within 15 minutes of taking the temperature. Oral temperatures will be higher after warm drinks. So if your child has been sipping soup or tea or broth, wait 15 minutes after checking those. Okay, so what is a fever? And is it dangerous? Why do we get fevers? Simple. The body creates fevers for a reason. The body raises the temperature to create an inhospitable environment for most of the bugs, the bacteria and viruses, that can make our kids sick and which prefer to thrive at normal body temperature. When the temperature goes up, the body mounts an inflammatory response that fights bacteria, viruses, and other infections. In fact, the aches and discomforts that you're probably familiar with yourself from having had a fever and that our kids get is due to these inflammatory chemicals. Some of them are called cytokines that are fighting off the infection. Fever also activates white blood cells and antibodies and many other mechanisms for fighting off the infection. So the body raises the temperature a few degrees to give us a winning edge because most of those organisms don't thrive or survive as well at higher temperatures. So fever is actually beneficial and not harmful at all in most cases. The fever itself is not an illness, it's a symptom and part of a natural, healthy, inflammatory response that mobilizes white blood cells, antibodies, and cytokines to fight infection. Fevers in kids are generally caused by common viral infections, and most of these are also not dangerous. Kids will often have symptoms such as cough, runny nose, earache, or a rash. When there are cold symptoms accompanied by a fever, all you pretty much need to do is wait it out, keep your child comfortable, and keep him or her hydrated. Interestingly, even most kids with ear infections and sore throats, for example, 85% of sore throats are viral, not strep. do not need medical treatment other than also comfort, support, and hydration. Bacterial infections such as strep, urinary tract, and some bacterial ear infections can also cause fever. And these are times when your child may need antibiotics, but that's to treat the infection. Even in these cases, the fever is a symptom telling you something's going on, not the problem itself. Of note, and this is often a really big misconception, the height of a fever generally has very little relationship to the severity of an illness. So a kid can have a mild cold and be a kid who runs high fevers. A kid can have a more serious infection like pneumonia and run a relatively low fever. The exception for that is in babies under three months old. In that case, the risk of a serious illness is 10 times higher with a high fever. And again, this is also why We want to make sure that in babies three months and younger, have a quicker reaction time to go get an evaluation from the pediatrician. And in babies one month and under, we always get medical attention for a fever. Now, the biggest fear that I think most of us have, and we've been deeply instilled in this, For decades, actually, our mothers and grandmothers were deeply instilled in this, is the idea that a fever, and particularly a high fever, is going to cause brain damage. The idea that there's a glass ceiling on fever has been recognized since the 1940s, meaning the fever will only go so high in most children, unlike in a condition like hyperthermia which can occur with certain medications or nervous system problems, where the body's thermostat has been hijacked and the body can't regulate its temperature, in those cases, the fever may become dangerously high. But in normal healthy people, the brain has a natural turnoff mechanism at a certain temperature. So fevers in kids rarely ever exceed the body's natural fever cutoff point above, which it's not going to go higher than is safe. So fevers in kids rarely ever get to above 105 degrees Fahrenheit or high enough to cause brain damage or a coma. In fact, brain damage or coma from a fever is so extremely rare that it's really just not something to worry about in normal, healthy kids with otherwise intact brain function. In fact, there's nothing inherently dangerous about a fever. The risk really has to do with what the underlying infection is. And remember, the height of the fever doesn't correlate with that, except in babies three months and under, and whether your child is staying hydrated. In the beginning, I talked about some of the potential side effects of medications like ibuprofen and Tylenol. So of course, you may be wondering, well, are fever medications ever okay to give? Tylenol and ibuprofen, can both moderately reduce fever, and with it, aches and pains that accompany fever, cold and flu, as well as earaches and sore throats, ibuprofen is the more effective of the two, and they're commonly used in conjunction, alternating them over the course of the day, but either can be used alone. These medications do help with comfort, but they're not helping the illness to go away any faster nor do they decrease the risk of febrile seizures, which I'm going to talk about in just a little while. While Tylenol, ibuprofen, and related medications can reduce fever by about a degree, they don't get to the underlying cause of the illness, they don't shorten the duration of the illness, and while they can help your child be more comfortable, which is important, they do carry some risks. Tylenol has been associated with liver toxicity and increases the risk of developing asthma. Tylenol, as I mentioned earlier, also burns up something called glutathione, which is naturally produced by your body. Your body uses glutathione to take care of what we commonly call free radicals. It helps as an antioxidant. When we burn that up, we open up ourselves to lots of oxidative stress. Tylenol, as a result of this, is associated with liver toxicity. In fact, in some countries, Tylenol can only be sold over-the-counter in pharmacies by the pharmacist at a maximum dose that's allowed to be dispensed at any one time. Ibuprofen and other drugs in this class called non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, or NSAIDs, can cause gastritis, even with just five days of use and stomach bleeding as a result of the gastritis. And that's literally just from using them every day for a week with fever. They're also associated with an increase in secondary infections. So for example, you get a respiratory infection and then you get pneumonia secondary to that. And they may delay healing. I treated a four-year-old girl in my practice who had developed severe gastritis as a baby from the simple usual recommendation of giving Tylenol and ibuprofen around the clock which led to her then requiring Prilosec for the gastritis for six months. And in her case, this all led to a domino effect of medical problems, including an autoimmune disease that she developed by the time she was two. Of course, this is rare. And fortunately, in this little one's condition, we were able to put her condition into remission. The important part is the more we learn about these medications, the more we learn about their potential unintended side effects, short and long term. So yes use them as needed, but remember, unlike how physicians typically recommend them, which is almost like candy, they're not benign. In my medical practice and amongst my family and friends, if a child is mildly uncomfortable with a common febrile illness, cold, flu, sore throat, ear infection, I suggest starting with natural remedies, which I'm gonna share with you whenever possible. If a child is quite uncomfortable, for example, has flu symptoms or really bad sore throat or horrible ear aching, then you might consider going right to using ibuprofen or Tylenol. Or you might try the natural remedies, pair them up, or switch from the natural remedies to the ibuprofen or Tylenol if the symptoms aren't being touched by the natural remedies. If you do need to use the ibuprofen or Tylenol, use it at the lowest dose that you can that will still help your child for the shortest amount of times throughout the day and for the shortest number of days. So lowest needed dose, lowest needed amount of time. I do want to swing back and mention a word about febrile seizures because If your child experiences them, it can be downright terrifying to see, and it's a good idea to know about them because they're not that uncommon. I will tell you, the first time I saw a febrile seizure was actually in my medical training. Even as a a young physician, it was frightening to see, and the parents were just out of their mind terrified, of course. So I want you to just be prepared and and know what this is all about. About 4% of all children Will have a febrile seizure at some time. A febrile seizure is caused by a rapid increase in the temperature, not by the height of the temperature. So, if your child has, you know, let's say a temperature of 100.4 and then suddenly goes to 100.2, that rapid switch just jars the brain and leads to this febrile seizure response. Febrile seizures typically occur between six months old and five years old, and they rarely ever have any lasting consequences, and they rarely ever predict that your child has a seizure disorder like epilepsy. However, once a child has had a high fever and a febrile seizure, While it's unlikely for the seizure to recur again during that illness, that child is likely to have seizures with subsequent fevers. In other words, some kids just seem prone to them. If your child does have a febrile seizure, again, it's very scary. So a lot of parents will call 911. It's not technically necessary to do that, but there's no harm if you do. And of course, you might feel like right then and there, you need that support, which is totally understandable. Importantly, if you do see your child having a febrile seizure, whether or not you're calling emergency services, and, and certainly while you're waiting, make sure your child is in a safe space. For example, there's nothing to bang his or her head on, or you know they're not on the edge of a bed or sofa that they're going to fall off of. Call your pediatrician or family doctor after and let them know what's happened and find out what they want you to do and discuss your plan of action so you're prepared for next time should it happen again. The use of fever-reducing medications has not been shown to prevent febrile seizures. So if your child has a fever and you're terrified of febrile seizures because you know someone who had them or you're just scared of them, giving ibuprofen or Tylenol is not going to prevent that. And similarly, if your child has a fever next time and had a seizure before and you're trying to prevent them in the future giving the ibuprofen or Tylenol is not going to prevent that. So just give that if you need to for your child's comfort. So when should you see the doctor? Well, most fevers are due to minor and self-limiting viral infections. The exception to that is if a child has a fever and doesn't have any cold symptoms. And one thing you might want to consider in that case is a urinary tract infection. So you want to be aware of that. And also, we want to be aware of the fact that COVID may present as unusual symptoms in your child. So if your child has COVID or had a COVID exposure, also talk with your child's physician about that. Any babies, I'm going to reiterate this, under three months old with a fever should be seen by a physician because babies of that age are more susceptible to serious bacterial infections just due to the natural immaturity of their immune system. And that's the same even if you're breastfeeding. They also have a higher risk of infection in that first three months from an infection that they could have picked up in the hospital. Or if mom had any communicable vaginal infection, like herpes infection, that could have been transmitted. There's also a late stage group B strep. So we want to make sure that we're really on top of that with the first sign of anything in young babies. Any babies under six months with a high fever, so over 103.5 or comparably depending on where you're checking it on the body, refer back to the information I shared earlier, should be seen unless the fever comes down quickly with a treatment like Tylenol or ibuprofen or the baby is comfortable, totally acting fine, breastfeeding, maybe, you know, not as cheerful and happy as usual, maybe a little fussy and irritable, but isn't listless or not responding. You can give a dose of Tylenol, age appropriate, body weight appropriate, or ibuprofen, age body weight appropriate, and give it a bit of time. You can give it an hour or two and see if the fever comes down. You can give a call to your pediatricians or family doctor's office and say, hey, this is going on. This is what I'm noticing. And then they can talk with you over the phone and help you figure out the best plan. Any kids who are not taking fluids or not urinating a normal amount at any age or just not acting right, if they have a stiff neck or persistent vomiting or a severe headache, which can be signs of meningitis, although again, that's rare, or severe earache pain or belly pain, which could be something like appendicitis, they should be seen. And if they seem at all listless limp, they're not waking up, like they're just kind of floppy, they're not making eye contact, get medical care. Any children of any age who have had recurrent fevers for more than seven days, even if the fever only lasts a few hours a day, should get seen because that may be something else that's going on that needs to be checked out. That's not typical for cold or flu or ear infection or sore throat. And of course, if you just feel like your child needs to be seen, you're not sure, you're not comfortable, go get them seen. You can do that. Just keep in mind that you can get the assessment, but if it's a common viral infection and an antibiotic is prescribed, you can feel free to push back a little bit and ask more questions about whether that's truly needed because we do wanna avoid the antibiotic overprescribing that's so rampant and can have unintended personal health consequences short and long-term, and contributes to the global problem of antibiotic resistance, that before COVID was actually considered the single biggest global public health threat facing all of us, and that we really all do have to play a part in preventing. And interestingly, doctors in pediatric offices and in the emergency room are much more likely to give an antibiotic even if it's not needed if they think the parent wants it or the parent seems anxious about it. So have that honest conversation. So in summary about when to see the doctor, all babies under one month old with fever should be seen by a doctor immediately. This can be a medical emergency. Babies under three months old with a high fever, as I've talked about, should be seen by a doctor. Any kids who are not taking fluids, not urinating a normal amount compared to usual, or just aren't acting right, should be seen by the doctor. Any kids with fever, along with stiff neck, persistent vomiting, or severe headache should be seen by the doctor. If your child has severe ear or belly pain, if your child is lethargic, that is, he's just not fully waking up, seems weak, or just kind of sort of limp and lying there and isn't making eye contact, see the doctor. Fevers that stay high for more than three to five days, so actually a high fever by how I've talked to you about it, and staying high for more than three to five days or recurrent fevers that come and go for more than seven days, see your doctor. And remember, if you feel worried that your child has a serious illness, take your child to the doctor. And here's something else I would say, and this is really important. If you feel that something is going on with your child and you take your child to the doctor and the doctor dismisses that, push a little harder. I've talked with many pediatricians, some who have tens of thousands of patients in their practice and who have been doing this work for 30, 40 years. And it's almost universal that when the mom thinks something is really wrong, and I don't mean you feel anxious and you're worried that something's really wrong, but you're really saying something here isn't right. Mom is often correct on that. So trust your mama intuition and don't feel silly if you went in and it was a fever and a cold. It's better safe than sorry. And this is how we build our confidence and comfort. So what can you do? Let's talk about some common sense and natural fever remedies. So keep in mind, you don't have to treat the fever. The body is trying to mount this fever to fight the infection. So the goal is really not to lower the fever. If you need to bring the temperature down a little bit to bring your child more comfort, or really the remedies like ibuprofen and Tylenol, and the things that I'm going to share with you, some of the natural approaches, with the botanicals are just to help with the discomforts that are associated with the fever, those aches and those pains and the tummy upset, although the Tylenol and ibuprofen can actually add to the tummy upset. You can also combine these herbal teas and glycerites that I'm going to talk with you about. I'm going to explain what that means, glycerite, with ibuprofen and Tylenol. And even if your child's taking antibiotics, of course, always run it by Your child's doctor, just to make sure they're on board with it. You know, it's important to have a team behind everything, which is always really nice. But you can combine these things as well. So let's talk about hydration because hydration is literally the number one key to all of this. Give your child loads of fluids during the fever. Nursing babies should be allowed to nurse freely. Older babies can be nursed often, and if they're just intermittently nursing anyway, then you can give them a little bit of water or herbal tea by sippy cup, a teaspoon or an eyedropper, however they take it, and depending on how much you're nursing. Similarly, if you're feeding formula, keep feeding the baby their normal formula. If your child is sleeping a lot, wake him up periodically for sips of water, a healthy electrolyte drink. Or herbal tea. Because kids, they get these fevers, they're 103 fever, and they're just sleeping hours and hours and hours. And the body needs that. But then they're also going all those hours with not hydrating. And not hydrating, that's where the risks come in. It affects the body cells, the brain cells, causes inflammation, all the things. If your child just feels awful and is refusing to drink very much, which sometimes happens, they're like, I don't want it. And they push it away, you know, or they're not even verbal yet and they just push it away. They don't want it and they make that face and or cry or they have a very sore throat, or if their ears hurt and they can't swallow easily, then, yes, try to encourage them to drink any of the fluids that I've just mentioned. Using a straw to sip through is kind of a a sneaky little hack that I've learned, both raising kids and as a physician. Another mom hack that you can do, and this is also a pediatrician hack, is to give ice pops average ice pop has about 4 ounces of fluids in them and kids love them I mean, like what kid turns down an ice pop and when they're fevery and feeling icky or have that sore throat we even keep those in the emergency department for kids with fevers who don't necessarily need ivs but who aren't well hydrated and we'll just give them ice pop after ice pop and then they hydrate back up you can do herbal ice pops and make those with some fruit juice you want to get a good quality you know fruit juice no sugar added Whatever flavors your kids like for ice pops it's a kind of a sneaky, tasty way to get the the teas into your kids. At the end of the article that's associated with this podcast episode, I have an opt-in that you can get. And it's a download of some of my favorite herbal ice pop recipes. Signs of dehydration that you want to be aware of really are important because dehydration signs don't usually show up until dehydration becomes pretty significant. And this includes not producing much body fluid. So they're not peeing very much. Their tongue appears dry. Their skin has less tone. There's even something called tenting. And when you pinch that skin between the forefinger and thumb, then the skin doesn't go back down as readily. It almost looks like a little tent got pitched right there on the skin. The eyes may look a little bit sunken and the mouth might appear pasty. If your child has gotten to the point of showing signs like this of dehydration, You definitely want to be loading up on fluids and talk with your child's doctor about whether and when IV fluids might be needed. Because again, staying hydrated, that's mission critical. So the next thing is resting and staying home. It really is important to let your child rest and sleep as much as she needs to. So creating a quiet, comfortable resting environment and keeping your child home from daycare or school during the fever is really important. I actually lean back into what my great grandmother used to say, which is to keep a child home for 24 hours after the fever is resolved. And you know, if it's COVID or flu, that your child's school or preschool may have some specific guidelines around that too. But even from just an optimal recovery perspective, give it 24 hours after the fever is resolved. So the fever ends at two o'clock on Monday, keep them home through Tuesday, send them back on Wednesday, for example, Also, sometimes kids get better for a day and then the fever comes back. So it's giving you a chance to see what's going on. It also allows us to protect other people, right? It keeps infections from spreading throughout our kids' preschools and schools. I know that this is really inconvenient if you have a job outside the home and more so if you're a solo parent, but it's so important personally for your child and also for public health. One of my all-time favorite memories from childhood, I was about six years old and I got the flu and my single working mom stayed home with me and read books and we watched movies and TV together and I'm 56. So I remember that as like a vivid memory, even 50 years later. So even though your child is sick and miserable, some of that nourishing connection and contact can also create important memories for your child in that nourishment and care. Speaking of nourishment, we want to nourish with light foods. It's normal for kids to have very little appetite when they're feverish. You do need to push the fluids or the ice pops, but you can keep foods light. It's okay if they eat little nibbles here and there, even if it's for a couple of days. Soups, broths, toast, small amounts of fruit, steamed vegetables, but don't force them to eat. Just push the fluids and let them kind of naturally find their way through. If your baby is breastfeeding, that's different. Then they do absolutely still need to keep their nourishment up. If they're stopping feeding or if they're stopping taking formula, that's very different. Okay. So I mentioned earlier that swaddling and overbundling can actually increase body temperature. So just as a common sense thing, make sure you're not overbundling your baby or your child. Let them wear light, loose layers of natural breathable fibers and have light layered blankets on the bed or if you're holding them and wrapping them. If your child is old enough to say she or he has a chill or feels hot or cold, then, of course, you can adjust the layers as needed. But for little ones, especially infants, they're just going to get really hot and then they get overheated and listless and a little bit lethargic even as a triage physician working emergency call at night from home. And I would get the call at one or two in the morning from the scared mama. It's usually the scared mama with the dad in the background saying things. That's the typical scenario or sometimes a mama home by herself. And the first thing I always have them do is unswaddle the baby or unswaddle the child. And then we hang out on the phone and then recheck the temperature or do that and then call me back in 15 minutes. And usually giving 10 or 15 minutes is plenty if you've been swaddling and then you can recheck. Let's talk about some natural remedies that you can use. I have been an herbalist for a very long time. I started studying herbal medicine when I was 15. I started practicing as an herbalist when I was 20. I am Considered one of the world's leading Western herbalists in women's and children's health. I literally wrote the textbook on herbal medicine for women and continue to now, for 12 years, have written the integrative medicine pediatric curriculum for Yale, the pediatric residency, which is used in 150 different residency programs around the country. Going from hippie home birth mama herbalist to Yale MD has not changed my love of appreciation for or confidence in using herbs. Herbs can be used to help ease the symptoms associated with a fever, the aches, the headache, the tummy discomforts, the chills. High fevers can be lowered a little bit with the herbs I'm going to share with you. And they're just a lovely way to bring some hydration into if your children enjoy them. These are the classics that I've used with my own children and that I use in my medical practice. And they're also ones that are safe for children of all ages. Of course, babies under three months, you're checking with your pediatrician first. And in those babies, optimally, what you're really doing is breastfeeding if you're still nursing them. So this is a very simple selection that I'm going to share with you, just uh, like a half dozen things that you can use. So the forms that these herbs are given in are teas, and that's the most traditional way to use the herbs that I'm going to talk about with you today, except for lavender, which is going to be lavender oil, just externally in baths for comfort. But you can also use these herbs in glycerites or tinctures. Glycerites and tinctures are both a form of an alcohol that extracts the active portions of the herbs into a very concentrated form. So instead of your child having to sip down, you know, a quarter cup of tea, you can actually take just a few drops of the glycerite and give it to them directly, or a few drops of the tincture and dilute that in water. Glycerites are really interesting because they're a form of alcohol, but it's a sugar alcohol. It tastes very sweet. And it has a syrupy consistency to it. So, most kids actually really like them. There are a couple of companies, Herb Farm and Gaia Herbs, both of which I have no financial relationship with, that make glycerides and put the products for children in baby friendly child dosing packages. So, the actual bottle will have an age or weight dose for infants and children, which is really a convenient way to use them. And those are companies that I've known the owners for decades and do a really good job with quality and organic materials, et cetera. The other thing is the remedies that I'm talking about with you today are really specific for the aches and pains and symptoms associated with fever. I'm going to share when they have other benefits as well, like for cough or something like that. But On my website, I have other articles that are specific for things like ear infection and sore throat. And for those of you who want to become doctor mom experts or doctor dad experts, I have a full online course called Healthy All Year, which you can learn about over at the homepage of my website, drop down under courses in the main banner, and it'll take you to Healthy All Year, which is a course with All these things and so much more downloadable recipes, tips on, you know, when things are an emergency, when to call the doctor that are quick reference and all the things you can do to support and boost and prevent colds, flus and respiratory and other infections and all the things that you can do naturally to treat. When it comes to dosing, tea is usually given in one or two eyedroppers full for babies, a quarter cup for children under one, a quarter cup to one cup every few hours for toddlers and older children. And for children 10 and over, they can drink a cup of tea a few times a day. I do talk about all this dosing in the healthy all year. I also have a book called Naturally Healthy Babies and Children. It came out in the, oh gosh, that came out around 1998, I think. And um, it was one of my early books. And it's chock full of these wonderful, beautiful natural remedies. Teas can be sweetened with honey or maple syrup. And honey is actually phenomenal for treating coughs too but it's really important not to give honey to babies under one year old. It can actually cause infant botulism. So these are the herbs that I love. Chamomile, catnip, and lemon balm. And I usually combine that as a tea. And it can be made into a tea that then you cut with some of your child's favorite juice and freeze that combination into ice pops. If they won't drink the tea because they're not used to herbal teas, you can do half tea and half fruit juice or half sparkling water just to get them hydrated and to get the herbs into them. These three herbs that I just mentioned, chamomile, catnip, and lemon balm, are all relaxing and are traditionally used for fever to ease the aches and pains and reduce tummy upset. They're all pleasant tasting and very gentle even for little babies. Fresh ginger root tea. Ginger is antiviral. It's antibacterial and it's great for tummy troubles. For the tummy troubles and achy kinds of symptoms, it can also be used as a glycerite or tincture. As a tea, it also helps break up mucus and congestion. So it's great when there's cough, runny nose, chest congestion, and also those chills and aches and general discomforts of fever spearmint and elder blossom tea. Now, this is a traditional combination and it can either be spearmint or peppermint and elder blossom. It's traditionally used to bring fever down a little bit by causing someone to sweat. The tricky part is that sweating actually leads to more loss of fluids and risk of dehydration. So if your child is already not taking very many fluids, I would not use this. But if your child is healthy, robust, doing really well, has a fever, you're trying to look for something to bring the fever down a little bit because you just really don't want to use the Tylenol or ibuprofen. And you really do want to kind of nudge that fever down a little because it's edging on a range that makes you feel uncomfortable or your child's doctor is saying, I'd really like us to see this, bring this fever down a little bit. Again, medically, we don't typically have to bring that fever down. But again, it's that personal feeling of like, ooh, this is a little uncomfortable for me. Spearmint and elder blossom or peppermint and elder blossom tea can be sipped. This only works as a tea. It does not work as a glycerite or a tincture. This is different than elderberry syrup, which is used with flu and which I talk about in other podcast episodes and other articles over at my website lavender oil this is not taken internally this is a few drops of lavender essential oil that can be added to a warm bath three to five drops per bath and that's really just to soothe the aches and pains and irritability that comes with fever symptoms it's essentially you're using aromatherapy and if your child has a chill and doesn't want to get in a warm bath that's totally fine you can actually just use it as aromatherapy with an atomizer to miss the room and we also want to make sure to avoid a chill when they come out. So have the bathroom nice and warm and wrap them in a nice towel. I mentioned where to get tinctures. If you don't know where to get bulk herbs, there's an online company called Mountain Rose Herbs. In my healthy all year course, I have a whole section on how to build a home remedies medicine cabinet. So you have these things on hand ahead of time. I can't tell you as an herbalist and as a young mom, midwife, myself, how many calls I got from my girlfriends when their own child had the you know, earache in the middle of the night. Could they come by and get a bottle of the garlic mullen oil eardrops that I always made and kept in the fridge in bulk for mamas that needed them. So it wasn't just as a physician that I would get the middle of the night triage calls. So it's so often that these symptoms come up in just the most awkward times, it's like 10 o'clock at night, all the health food stores are closed, all the herb shops are closed. You can't just order online and have it there fast enough. And that's when your child's fever or earache starts, right? I know if you're listening to this and you've been in that, you're you're nodding your head. So having that herbal medicine cabinet set up ahead of time is a really nice way to be prepared. And my book, Naturally Healthy Babies and Children, is definitely old school, but it also has some of the things that you want to keep at home for natural home remedies cabinet. Nursing moms with feverish nursing babies can also drink adult doses of these herbs. You won't get a ton in your breast milk, but with chamomile, catnip, lemon balm, ginger, and spearmint, there are some volatile oils that will get through to baby and it'll help you feel more relaxed too. If you are breastfeeding, that is the most important thing. It's amazing what your breast milk can do. Your breast milk actually reads signals from baby's saliva, especially young babies like six months and under, and adjusts the antibodies in your breast milk to meet your baby's needs with immune supporting factors. Now, there are also a few other supplements that you can use with age-appropriate doses, and these include zinc, vitamin D, and vitamin C, as well as a probiotic. These have all been shown to prevent colds, and may shorten their duration. And these aren't for fever per se, but if your child has a cold or flu symptoms, you can use these to shorten the duration. And that's where elderberry comes in as well. If you do use the vitamin D, zinc, and vitamin C and the probiotic, I typically recommend staying on them for about 5 to 10 days after the fever has broken and the symptoms have gone away just to continue to support the immune system. So, your child has a fever. How do you know that things are improving? Well, Kids can run a fever for as short as 24 hours. Many of us who are moms with grown kids can think back to that 24-hour thing that our kid had, that 24-hour virus is what we'll often call it. But typically, fevers last five to seven days because typically respiratory infections last for five to seven days. Things are improving when your child starts to perk up and feel better. Sometimes you'll notice that they've broken a sweat. They wanna get up and play more, interact more, and their appetite is returning. Those are all signs that things are improving and going in the right direction. I just want to kind of sum up and say, remember that most fevers are viral infections that are quite simple and self-resolving. In babies under three months, a visit to the doctor is important. In babies under one month, critical. It may be necessary in babies under six months. The most important things though, once you know that everything's okay, is keeping your child comfy, offering a light diet guided by your child's appetite, lots of hydration. If you want to, using simple herbal remedies in lieu of the more conventional fever-reducing and symptom-reducing medications like Tylenol and ibuprofen, creating a really supportive nourishing environment, And that's all that's really needed. If you need to or want to use Tylenol or ibuprofen or both, keep it to the minimum amount of doses for the shortest number of days and allow some time for convalescence to prevent rebound and secondary infections. And remember, you're not bothering your doctor if you call or go in, but there's a lot you can learn to also build your confidence as a doctor mom. And some of the resources I share with you over at my website, articles and podcasts on ear infections, sore throat and strep, cold and flu, much much more. There's naturally healthy babies and children old school, but you know, sometimes that old school is really what we need. And there is Healthy All Year, a really beautiful, really affordable, comprehensive course that you can refer to over and over again. For supporting healthy immunity, for addressing these common kids' infections and symptoms that come up. And for those of you who have kids who tend to be sick every Monday and Thursday or, you know, just get sick recurrently, it's also helpful because we walk through diet, gut health, and a lot of the underlying factors that can help you to improve and support your child's immunity. And most of all, I'm wishing you trust in your own beautiful mama wisdom. See you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, You can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.